The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G.K. Chesterton. Episode 2, The Feast of Fear. As an artist, it isn't that I never rebelled against anything. Instead, from a very early age, I decided to rebel against rebellion itself. Let me explain. I came from a family of cranks. One of my uncles always walked about without a hat, and another had made an unsuccessful attempt to walk about with a hat and nothing else. My father cultivated art and self-realization. My mother went in for simplicity and hygiene. As a child, I was wholly unacquainted with any drink between the extremes of absinthe and cocoa, for both of which I developed a healthy dislike. By the time my mother started enforcing vegetarianism, my father was pretty much defending cannibalism. Being surrounded with every conceivable kind of revolt from infancy, I had to revolt into something, so I revolted into the only thing left. Sanity. The story of how I joined the force began one average day as I was walking to lunch at my favorite cafe. My introduction to the morality of anarchy came quite unexpectedly. I wasn't badly hurt. Eventually, the images of dismembered body parts began to fade, but afterward, there was forever a spot on my mind that was not sane. It was at my return visit to the blast site that I was greeted by a plainclothes detective. Good evening to you. Good evening. You policemen would call the end of the world a good evening. How do you know I'm a policeman? Oh, come on. Those shoes and that haircut. You stand there, calm as the day is cruel. I can forgive you for persecuting the poor, but not for your apathetic, casual contentedness. If we seem calm, it is only the calm of organized resistance. I suppose that's meant to be comforting. The soldier must be calm in the thick of battle. The composure of an army is the anger of a nation. This is battle, all right. Where did you go to school? Sandhurst? Royal College of Music, actually. Get off! Why, I'm a Cambridge man myself. Hmm. Are you a musician? Well, I... What the devil are you doing with the police? <laughs> I found a department that interested me. Different from the usual law enforcement. That doesn't answer my question. How do you justify yourself as an artist who then carries a badge? I would love to tell you all about it. When I saw you here, I had the thought, you'd be just the type of man who should join us. Join you? In what? An intellectual war. There is a conspiracy inside the artistic community that is silently bound in a crusade to destroy the family and the state. These are not your average criminals. To fight them, we need better than the average detective. You've effectively piqued my interest. The chief of my division is one of the most celebrated detectives in the country. 
He's formed a task force of policemen who come out of the art and philosophy world. Our mission is to trace the origin of evil thought that drives men to intellectual fanaticism and eventually, terrorism. We try to infiltrate their secret groups and frustrate their plans from the inside. Do you really mean that there is a connection between terrorism and art? Oh yes. It isn't the uneducated that are dangerous. It's the modern philosophers, the lawless, educated, free thinkers, the anarchists. I've often thought about the common criminal, how he probably wouldn't be a thief if he had enough money to eat. Yes. Thieves, for example, respect property. They just wish it was theirs. But the anarchist hates property and wants to destroy it. Yes. And a murderer respects life, even though he takes it from others. But the anarchist hates life itself, his own, as much as everyone else's. Exactly. Sir, you must join our special army against anarchy. The axe is about to fall on their power. We are perhaps the last heroes of the modern world. Mad men have always been a part of society. You can't get rid of them all. Our focus is very specific. There is a vast, well-organized movement of anarchists with a strong central council and branches throughout the country. If they're so organized as that, how can we even begin to stop them? We don't need to worry about the laity. Without leadership, they would scatter. But the priesthood... These are dangerous men. The dreadful Council of Days. Seven of the most destructive human beings on Earth. They will not stop until they have completely destroyed humanity. And in the end, they will even kill themselves. How can I join you? I know for a fact that there is an opening. I will take you to see the chief immediately. Excellent. Well, I shouldn't say see. Nobody ever sees him. But you can talk to him. On the telephone? No. He is obsessed with always sitting in a pitch-dark room. He says it makes his thoughts brighter. He took me to a special building in Scotland Yard. As we weaved through the maze of desks and hallways, the other agents seemed to already know my name. Good morning, Mr. Syme. The special task force is almost completely undercover. We don't carry traditional badges. Oh, how do you know each other? Mr. Syme, On the whole, you don't know each other. But for special occasions, we carry little blue cards. Mr. Syme, is it? Welcome. You'll see. At last, we came to a plain, solid door with nothing more on it than a placard that read, Chief. He gestured for me to enter. Taking a deep breath, I opened the door. It was pitch black inside. Even the light from the door was quickly swallowed up by darkness. This was not ordinary darkness, in which forms can be faintly traced. It was like going suddenly and frightfully stone blind. Are you the new recruit? I knew immediately that the voice came from a man of massive stature, and that the man had his back to me. All right. You are engaged. But I don't have any experience. No one has any experience in the Battle of Armageddon. But I'm really unfit. You are willing. That is enough. I haven't heard of any job where willingness is the only test. I have. Martyrs 
I am condemning you to death. Where this adventure ultimately led me, I've already told. At about half past one, on a February night, I found myself steaming in a small tug up the silent River Thames, armed with a sword stick and revolver, the duly elected Thursday of the Central Council of Anarchists. In my hands was a small blue card that read, The Last Crusade, and bore the official seal of our operation, along with my agent number. I would often stare at it, wondering where it would take me next. Every trace of the strange cloudy sunset had been swept away, and a naked moon stood in a naked sky. The moon was so strong and full that it seemed like a weaker sun. It gave off a dead daylight that gave the whole landscape a luminous and unnatural discoloration. Perhaps I was actually on some other, emptier planet, which circled round some sadder star than ours. Finally, the boat pulled up to a small dock off of a stone embankment. The tug quickly chugged away without me. I climbed the long flight of broken steps to the top of the embankment. A lone man stood leaning against a stone column, staring transfixed across the river. Upon closer inspection, I saw he had a long, pale and intellectual face. I stood there, but he didn't move to acknowledge my presence. I must have approached the wrong person, however, there wasn't another soul to be seen. The only thing I could do was join him in his hollow stare across the river. Finally, his face broke out into a crooked, repulsive smile. If we walk across the street and through the square, we'll be just in time for breakfast. Have you slept? No. Neither have I. We should try to get some rest after the meeting. In case you haven't heard, our beloved president has taken his idea of hiding ourselves in plain sight to extraordinary new heights. Sometimes I think his brain has grown a bit too big for his head. Now we flaunt ourselves out in public, having breakfast on a balcony. A balcony. What do people say? They say we're just a bunch of silly old men who pretend to be anarchists. Sounds like a clever idea to me. Clever. Trust me, when you meet Sunday, you'll leave off calling him clever. We emerged out of a narrow street into the early sunlight filling Leicester Square. It was as if we had strayed into a new world. At one corner of the square was a prosperous but quiet hotel. Overhanging the square was a formidably buttressed balcony, big enough to contain a dining table. In fact, it did contain a dining table. And around it were a group of noisy and talkative men, all dressed in the insolence of fashion, with white waistcoats and expensive buttonholes. The secretary's unnatural smile gave them away. This was the secret conclave of the European terrorists. As I stared at them, I suddenly realized that another man was there. I hadn't noticed him because he was literally too large to see. Sitting closest to the edge with his back to me. It's a wonder the stone balcony didn't collapse under his weight. 
Not only was he abnormally tall and quite fat, this man was planned enormously in his original proportions, like a colossal statue. His head, crowned with white hair, as seen from behind, looked bigger than a head ought to be. The ears that stood out from it looked larger than human ears. He was enlarged terribly to scale, and this sense of size was so staggering that all the other figures looked like dwarves. It was as if the big man was entertaining five children to tea. Good morning, sire. Your party's upstairs. Talking about bombing the Prime Minister as usual. Thank you, waiter. I knew instantly that the monstrous man was the great President Sunday. Twice that night, I had already felt the sense of drawing nearer and nearer to the headquarters of hell. This sense became overpowering as I walked out through the balcony. The face of Sunday grew larger and larger. I had to force myself not to scream. Then, with more courage than it takes to jump off a cliff, I sat down at the table. Ah, finally, our new Thursday. Glad to see you. Sit down, my boy. <clears throat> I tell you, anarchists are getting younger by the day. It's good for the movement. Welcome, comrade. Thank you. We were just discussing Secretary Monday's lopsided laugh. <laughs> what the devil are you talking about? Your face. We want to know what disease you have that has so wasted it away. <laughs> no physical ailment, I assure you, but perhaps intellectual torture. And take a look at our friend Tuesday. Gogol, am I correct? What of it? He at least looks like your Gordon variety, Dynamiter. That bewildering bush of brown hair on his head looks like a Sky Terrier exploded out of his white collar. It's clear he doesn't have a clue. You dress like a gentleman, but don't bother to act like one. If you were to walk down the street in that get-up, you'd be arrested for stealing that suit. <laughs> I'm not good at concealment, though I'm not ashamed of the cause. Oh, yes you are, my boy. And the cause is ashamed of you. You try to hide as much as any of us, but you can't do it because you're a complete ass. <laughs> I am not good at the deception. Right, my boy, right. You aren't good at anything. <laughs> How about Comrade Friday? Huh? Is he actually alive? I keep waiting to see if an arm or a leg will fall right off of him. <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> Professor De Worms, you look as if some drunken dandies had put their clothes on a corpse. <clears throat> At your age, you should be sipping oatmeal through a straw, but you've eaten enough bacon and eggs to give any man a heart attack. <laughs> what say you, Saturday? Can you save the good professor if his eating habits suddenly get the best of him? I might like to watch him writhe on the ground a bit first. <laughs> You'd like that, wouldn't you, Bull? I can only guess at what wicked schemes you fantasize about behind those black spectacles. You smile at your medical patients like a man who doesn't mean them harm. It's no wonder you cover up your eyes. They will see instantly how wickedly insane you are. <laughs> right, enough of this useless banter. Let's return to the matter at hand. Since we have a new Thursday in our presence, let's bring him up to speed. President Sunday was always looking at me, steadily, as with a great and baffling interest. His blue eyes stood out of his head, and they were always fixed on me. Three days from now, 
the Tsar is to meet with the President of the French Republic in Paris. Our comrade Wednesday, the renowned Marquis de Saint-Eustache, will be there with a bomb in hand. After all, he is the only man here who actually knows anything about fashionable clothes. He will infiltrate their exclusive society luncheon, then rip to pieces the bodies of these tyrants with iron and roaring gas. I, I wonder whether I would prefer to do it with a knife. It would be a new emotion to get a knife into a French president and wriggle it around. Absolutely not. An explosive is not only our best tool, but the perfect symbol of anarchy. It expands and destroys as it broadens, just as thought only destroys because it broadens the mind. A man's brain is a bomb. My brain is a bomb. It must expand night and day, even if it breaks up the universe. I don't want the universe destroyed yet. There's still quite a few wicked things I'd like to do before then. If the only result of something is nothing, then it hardly seems worth doing. Every man knows in his heart that nothing is worth doing. When the President's eyes were on me, it was as if I were made of glass. There isn't a shred of a doubt that in some silent and extraordinary way, Sunday had found out that I was a spy. I felt compelled to leap off the edge of the balcony. In the street below was a policeman, staring up at the bright railings and the sunlit trees. He was a pillar of common sense and common order. I glanced back at the President, who still studied me with his big, unbearable eyes. We are getting off track. The question is how Wednesday is going to carry out the attack. I suggest that tomorrow morning, Dr. Ball should first go to... A vast shadow passed across the table. President Sunday had risen to his feet, filling the sky above us. Before we discuss that, let us go into a private room. I have something very important to say. This was it. The pistol was at my head. I would jump to the comfort of the policeman below. Somehow that barrel organ stopped me. It was the vulgar war cry of the common man in the streets. I was their ambassador. And there was no turning back now. So, so, you say you're not hide. You say you show yourselves. It is all nothing. When you want to talk importance, you run yourselves in a dark box. Goggle, my dear. You have much to learn. If we came here first, the whole kitchen staff would be listening at the door. Know you nothing of mankind. I die for them, and I slay their oppressors. I care not for these games of concealment. I would smite the tyrant in the open square. And now may I ask you to control your beautiful sentiments and sit down with the other gentlemen at this table. For the first time this morning, something intelligent is going to be said. <clears throat> we have spun out this farce long enough. I called you down here to tell you something so shocking that even the waiters upstairs might notice the new seriousness in my voice. Comrades, we were discussing plans and naming places. I propose, before saying anything else, that we leave the matter wholly in the hands of one reliable member. I suggest Comrade Saturday, Dr. Bull. 
Not one more word about plans will be said at this meeting, or in this company. I held tight to my hidden revolver. If I was to die today, then I would at least find out if the President was mortal. You understand that there is only one possible motive for forbidding free speech at this festival of freedom. Strangers overhearing us doesn't matter. But what would matter, even unto death, is this. That there should be one actually among us who is not one of us. Who knows our grave purpose, but does not share it. Who it can't be. There can't be. Yes. There is a spy in this room. A traitor at this very table. I will not waste any more words. His name is Gogol. That hairy fool that pretends to be a pole. He's wrong. I got him. Sit down. I sunk down into my seat shuddering in a palsy of passionate relief. Well, my friend, will you oblige me by showing us what you have in your upper coat pocket? Fear struck me once again. It bore a startling resemblance to the blue card in my own pocket. Pathetic fool. Are you prepared to admit that you are here as a spy for the police? Yes, sir. <clears throat> yes, sir, I admit it. I gather that you fully understand your position. Yes, sir, you have found me out. I'll give you that. But you have to admire my Polish accent. True. Your accent was impeccable, and I applaud you on that point. Would you mind leaving your hair with your card? Not at all. With one finger, he ripped off the whole shaggy head covering, emerging with thin red hair and a pale, pert face. It was too hot anyway. You seemed to keep quite cool under it. Now listen to me. I like you. It would annoy me for about two and a half minutes if I heard you died in a horrible death. However, if you tell the police or any human soul about us, I shall face that two and a half minutes. Good day, and mind the step. The red-haired detective rose to his feet and walked out of the room with an air of perfect nonchalance. Save that he neglected to mind the step. Ah, time is flying. I must be off at once. I have to chair a humanitarian lunch. Wouldn't it be better to discuss the details of our project now that the spy has left us? <sighs> no, 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 I think not. Leave it as it is. Let Saturday figure it out. I must be off. Breakfast here next Sunday. Sir, this isn't proper. A fundamental rule of our society is that all plans must be debated with the full council. Of course, I appreciate your forethought in the presence of a traitor, but... Secretary, if you take your head home and boil it for a turnip, it might be useful. I can't say, but it might. Really, I don't understand. That's right. You don't understand. Why, you dancing donkey. You didn't want to be overheard by a spy, did you? How do you know you aren't overheard now? If the last words of the President meant anything, they meant that I had not, after all, passed unsuspected. Perhaps Sunday could not denounce me like Gogol, but he still could not trust me like the others.
The Man Who Was Thursday was written and directed by Andrew Walquist, based on the novel by G.K. Chesterton. This episode featured performances by Jacob Sidney, Jason J. Lewis, Mark Bramhall, Stephen Allen Carver, Lisa Volpe, Gregory Gifford Giles, William Dennis Hunt, and Peter Macon. The music was composed and arranged by David Stanton. A full list of credits, special thanks, and sound effects can be found on our website, www.manwhoisthursday.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for episode three of The Man Who Is Thursday. <laughs>